Welcome to SWE Airborne. This podcast series is made possible thanks to the kind support of Viatris. Welcome all of our listeners to SWE Airborne. This is the podcast series of the European Scientific Working Group on Influenza, otherwise known as SWE. I'm your host, Claire Taylor speaking, and you're in the right place to get all of the latest viral news directly from SWE members. And these are the people who know the most about viruses, pandemics, vaccines, and more. So today's episode is all about insights into pathomechanisms. In particular, those groups of people for whom COVID-19 and influenza pose a serious health risk. And here to tell us all about it, I am delighted to welcome to the studio SWE member Dr. Gulsha Gabrielle, an SWE member since 2009 and head of the research department Viral Zoonosis One Health at the Leibniz Institute for Virology in Hamburg and Professor for Virology at the University of Veterinary Medicine in Hanover. Gulsha, sounds like you're busy. Welcome to SWE Airborne. Thank you, Claire. Thank you for having me. Gulsha, your area of research expertise on zoonosis and the routes by which these viruses may reach and infect at-risk people, this puts you very much on the cutting edge of public health issues today. But before we get into that, I'd like to understand how you got started on the path. Did you choose an undergraduate degree in biology? Yes, I studied uh, biology with a focus actually on virology, microbiology and uh, genetics at the Philips University in Marburg. And um, studying in Marburg, it was al almost not possible not to get uh, interested in virology because Marburg is a city devoted to viral research since uh, 1967, actually, when the first Marburg virus outbreak was detected in the city. Scientists back then at the Institute of Virology in Marburg contributed to the identification of uh, the viral outbreak, giving it later the name of the city. Um, so when I started my undergraduate, the Institute of Virology in Marburg was additionally very famous for its influenza research with uh, Professor Hans-Dieter Klenk, an eminent influenza virologist who um, sadly passed away last year. So viruses and in particular influenza viruses started to fascinate me during these very early years because uh, influenza viruses are masters of uh, host adaptation. Uh, that's brilliant that you started out at ground zero, basically, um, the, in your first studies. And from there, you went on to PhD level. And what topic did you choose there for your thesis? So I um, started my PhD thesis in uh, 2003. That was a time where highly pathogenic even influenza viruses of the H5N1 subtype, also known as bird flu, had re-emerged after they were first described to be even able to cross species barriers and jump from birds to humans in uh, 1997 in Hong Kong for the first time. Um, that was one event of many others to come in the following years. So I was very fortunate to receive the opportunity to perform my PhD uh, in Hans-Dieter Klenk's lab at the Institute of Virology in Marburg, dealing 
with the molecular determinants of avian influenza virus uh, interspecies transmission from animal to man. Then there was a move after that to the UK, right? You went on to the University of Oxford after that. What was that like? Um, oh, yes, Oxford was superb. So after my PhD in Marburg, I wanted to learn more about the influenza virus polymerase complex, uh, which we had identified before in Marburg to play a crucial role in viral interspecies transmission. So I went to the laboratories of uh, Professor George Brownlee and Professor Erwin Fodor at the Sir William Dunn School of uh, Pathology at the University of Oxford, who are both uh, eminent molecular biologists interested in understanding mechanisms of uh, influenza virus transcription and replication. So uh, I had a great time there. I learned a lot uh, scientifically and uh, also personally. That's wonderful. But you came back again to Germany to the Leibniz Institute, where you still work today, in fact. So that was 2009, and you received the prestigious Emmy Neuter Research Award, funded by the German Research Foundation, and in, indeed, that same year, joined ESWI and became the first winner of the ESWI Best Body of Work Award. So was 2009 a turning point in your career? Uh, yes, uh, definitely. So 2009 was uh, a turning point in my career. So for the first time, I had received the unique opportunity to become scientifically independent uh, by getting the Eminuta Research uh, Award. And I could now, I could then devote myself entirely to research questions I was most interested in. And that was a, a once in a lifetime opportunity, thanks to the, to this uh, excellent funding. And also thanks to the excellent working environment um, that was offered at the Leibniz Institute of Virology in Hamburg, where I'm still working today. That really brought a wonderful freedom of choice to refine your focus. And the public recognition did not stop there, right? I see various awards apart from the ones we just mentioned. You later received the Robert Koch Forder Prize the Leibniz Best Minds Award. I particularly like the phrasing of this one, to be a best mind must really feel quite good. And recently, the prize for translational infection research from the German Center of Infection Research. So did these prove transformational or change what was possible for you professionally? Um, yes, so awards are certainly tremendous motivators and you really need that in science uh, the motivation i mean you, you need that <laughs> because yes science is fascinating uh, but it also means full devotion to a path you do not always know where it might end so in other words it starts with a hypothesis you have but before you can actually start to do the required experiments in the lab you need money and that means you have to apply for research money the grant writing process is only just the first hurdle. Then you have to wait for the external reviews um, and the grant agency comes finally with a decision. And if the decision is negative, you can either quit <laughs> or motivate yourself to start all over again. Um, and then if you have the money, uh, then the next hurdle starts with the experiments you have to perform, you have to validate. And so on this way, again, you will face a lot of difficulties um, and um, you have to deal all the time with rejection and uh, you still have to keep somehow your spirit high to get uh, to keep going. 
And this is exactly, I think, why this external recognition is so important to um, many researchers. And it may come in a form in form of an award uh, or sometimes just in form of a simple well done uh, from a highly respected colleague that gives you the motivation to keep going um, in your uh, endeavors. Thank you so much for talking about that, because having to sort of embrace the unknown and keep faith in your chosen direction uh, and, you know, the uncertainty of the funding, it's its like what a lot of artists and creative workers in other fields um, complain of um, or challenges that they face. Rather, I wouldn't say you were complaining there, just mapping it out first. But that's really that's really interesting insight. And so now in your role as the head of the research department, Viral Zoonosis One Health at the Leibniz Institute, how does this, this is One Health is in the title, you know, in, in the title of your position, how does the One Health concept underpin your work? Yeah, well, as you correctly outlined, Claire, so I'm head of the department viral zoonosis uh, One Health at the Leibniz Institute of Virology here in Hamburg. But at the same time, I'm professor for virology at the University of Veterinary Medicine in Hanover. So thereby we uh, build close collaborations with uh, veterinarians, with physicians and with scientists in order to bridge the multifaceted actually aspects of influenza coming from an animal reservoir, jumping to humans and causing disease there. And by this constellation, we are, um, well, I have to say, living one health on a daily basis. Now, let's zoom in, as I feel we're moving closer to the centre here, on your particular special focus on pathomechanisms. And for the laymen and women who may be listening to this, I include myself, Am I right in thinking that this means the way that a virus, such as influenza and COVID-19, the way the virus is transmitted to a person? So pathomechanisms actually mean the mechanisms how a virus causes disease after it has transmitted to humans. So in other words, once an influenza virus jumps from birds to humans, it can start to cause diseases that were not seen before and of uh, various uh, severity. So we try to study exactly these mechanisms that lead to severe infection causes uh, in, in humans and eventually death. So let's start with pregnant women. As you know, as we remember George Cassianos in another episode of SWE Airborne gave us a very comprehensive overview of how pregnant women can protect themselves with different kinds of vaccinations. Gulsha, do you have any additional insight based on pathomechanisms for pregnant women and how best they can protect themselves? Uh, yes, the overview by Dr. Cassianos was excellent. And the only thing I might add here are the molecular mechanisms on how we believe maternal infection leads to a severe outcome. Uh, here we could uh, develop a couple of years ago uh, jointly in collaboration with Professor Peter Ack uh, and uh, a reproduction immunologist at the University Hospital Hamburg-Eppendorf, a new mouse model uh, of pregnancy, which mimics key aspects of human pregnancies, such as allogenicity of the fetus, meaning that the fetus has maternal and paternal genes. And um, we could show in this model that um, 
influenza virus infection, even a mild influenza virus infection, can lead to maternal immune activation, which we call MIA. And um, MIA itself can be sufficient to lead to adverse outcome in the offspring if the infection occurs very early during pregnancy. And in collaboration with uh, Professor Peter Openshaw, who is also an ASLI member, uh, we could show that offspring born to mildly influenza virus infected mother mothers are more susceptible to other virus infections in their later life. And we could identify alveolar macrophages as a crucial contributor here. So it seems, and I think this is very important to highlight, that um, you don't necessarily need severe infections to have potentially long-term consequences. That even mild infections, if they induce an inflammatory lung response, not even a systemic, inflammatory lung response, they can modulate offspring's immunity with potentially long-term health impairments. This is, of course, in contrast regarding the mechanisms uh, as compared to Zika virus infections, for example. There you have uh, the transmission of the virus from mother to fetus because Zika virus is able to infect the placenta very efficiently, which influenza cannot, and also SARS-CoV-2 is not able to efficiently infect the placenta and transmit from mother to fetus. But even then, if this transmission does not occur, you can have this potentially long-term health impairments. And uh, so translated, uh, this uh, means that... Um, so. Usually in many countries, vaccination is not recommended during the first trimester of pregnancy. Um, so most countries start to recommend vaccination during second and third trimester. And I believe that patient awareness needs to be increased regarding this elevated risk for mother and child and vaccination already may be uh, recommended at a very early stage because we found that this um, infection during early pregnancy can lead to these uh, long-term uh, consequences. Uh, maybe at a stage of family planning, and especially if the pregnancy and also if the pregnancy will go uh, through a winter time with high prevalences uh, in general of respiratory infections. Um, that could be something to, to make really focus and, and highlight that at the stage of family planning, it should be considered to get the flu shot in order to be protected during the first uh, trimester where the burden for the offspring could be high. Similar to how you might start preparing with vitamin supplements or other choices, this could be something that uh, people intending uh, to a pregnancy um, should exactly. take up on. Thank you so much for that. And then of the other vulnerable groups that you identified, you cited obesity as a risk factor. Why is this group particularly vulnerable to influenza and COVID-19? Um, so while obesity is a risk factor for adverse COVID-19 and influenza outcome, there seem to be distinct mechanisms here in place. So obesity in general is a condition that may cause metabolic disorders and also affect immune responses. Um, as such, obes obesity is considered a general risk factor for adverse outcome in many diseases that includes viral infections. However, what we found is, uh, in collaboration with Professor Jörg Heeren from the University Hospital Hamburg-Eppendorf, that SARS-CoV-2 replicates to quite high titers in human adipocytes, unlike, for example, seasonal H1N1 influenza. 
And that SARS-CoV-2 infection in these human adipocytes is able to modulate the host's uh, lipid metabolism, which could have, we don't know yet, but that's um, a question we are currently addressing, even long-term consequences. And moreover, in collaboration with uh, Professor Benjamin Ondruschka uh, from Legal Medicine here at the University Hospital Hamburg-Eppendorf, we could show that patients who died of COVID-19 still have a virus detectable in their adipose tissue at a very late stage where the infection already was mostly gone in the lung. And uh, that was quite intriguing because... Um, not only um, subcutaneous uh, fat tissue, but also visceral fat tissue, which covers our organs, was uh, virus positive. And there was a correlation between the body mass index, the BMI, of the COVID-19 patients and the detectable virus in their adipose tissue. And we also saw some sex differences here. So males had more virus in their adipose tissue or in general detectable virus compared to females, but we do not know the reason for that yet. So taken together, this means that SARS-CoV-2, in contrast to seasonal influenza, may replicate in human adipose tissue, which then in turn may act, for example, as a viral reservoir and contributing to increased overall virus load in the patient, which makes it very difficult to clear virus infection on one hand, but on the other hand, also change host metabolism with potentially yet unknown long-term consequences. So that is very in-depth scientific understanding for this group, how can practically day-to-day obese people protect themselves? What's your best advice here? So the best way to protect all risk groups is clearly vaccination. So an early focus on these most vulnerable groups would certainly help to reduce overall disease burden in, in viral infections in general. That's a very clear message. Do you think there's a sufficiently high degree of awareness among health practitioners of this message and of the higher risks of influenza and COVID-19? Well, uh, to be honest, honest, uh, the degree of awareness is generally dependent on the current situation. So like whether we are in the middle of an epidemic or uh, a pandemic as we are now. From a scientific perspective, I, I would say it is very important to continuously communicate new research findings to healthcare practitioners in non-epidemic and non-pandemic times, which we also call peacetime. So in order to be best prepared when occasionally epidemics and pandemics occur. Pandemic preparedness in peacetime indeed was the topic of another one of our episodes. And, uh, Gulsha, I'm what's next for you? I mean, what would you like to see happen in the next few years in research and application of this knowledge of pathomechanisms? A very good question and also a difficult one. Um, so there is now accumulating evidence that acute virus infections may cause long-term health impairments that were not known before. So the finding, for example, that even mild influenza infections during pregnancy can affect later life life infection susceptibility in the offspring, or that SARS-CoV-2 is able to replicate in adipose tissue and rewire host metabolism, um, are just some of many examples hinting towards potential long-term effects of acute virus infections. So there was a 
change in our thinking, I believe, in the last few years regarding acute virus infections because long-term consequences were mostly attributed to chronic virus infections. So everyone knows that um, a hepatitis C virus infection, for example, can cause or may cause liver cancer in the long term. Um, so I think uh, we uh, will focus in the upcoming years on questions addressing the mechanisms leading to these uh, long-term consequences of influenza and other respiratory infections. Um, this will uh, provide new insights on one hand uh, regarding our current understanding, uh, but also eventually help to um, define uh, or redefine uh, patient management and, and treatment strategies. Okay. Well, Gosha, you're a busy woman. I have a feeling you're going to continue to be very busy for many years to come. And that was really interesting. I, um, it's a great privilege to hear from you. And thanks a lot for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you very much, Claire. That, sadly, actually, because I could chat all day with Gosha, that was really super. But that brings us to the end of today's episode of SV Airborne. So, folks, keep on tuning in to SV Airborne the viral podcast series for all the latest on pandemics, vaccination, influenza, pathomechanisms, and more, directly from the members of ESWI, the European Scientific Working Group on Influenza. And until next time, dear listeners, stay safe. ESWI Airborne is brought to you by ESWI, the European Scientific Working Group on Influenza and Other Acute Respiratory Viruses. These episodes would not be possible without the team's efforts, and we would like to extend special thanks to our ESWI Secretariat, our technical and IT teams, our arts team, and our host, Claire Taylor. The podcasts are recorded virtually, and we thank our guests for their participation in this inspiring series. Talks are adapted to a global audience and are intended to be educational, for any specific medical questions you may have, these should be addressed to your local general practitioner. Many thanks to our sponsoring partners and thank you for listening.